<coughs> All right, good morning, Christ community. Hey, despite the appearances, I was not in a fraternity at Auburn University. Um, it just worked out that way this morning. So, um, so don't be concerned. I'm a, I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel, so we take football season off, so we won't fight until basketball season. And if you're SEC fans, we won't fight at all. Um, so uh, anyway, get the, got that out of the way. Matt? Okay, all right. Um, hey, we don't, uh, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about myself this morning. We took care of most of that last night, and so I want to make sure that we get right to the Word. And I want to tell you the reason that I selected the text and the title this morning, the pastor's call and the church's response. Um, I, I want you to hear very clearly from me what I understand my calling as pastor to be. And uh, concomitantly with that, I want you to understand what it is that, that I'm going to, as a pastor, hope to see from you as the church. Uh, and, and this is really from God's word, so it's not just from me. So I want you to know this, is, this was obviously Christ's heart, and Paul was picking that up in this, in this letter to the Ephesian church. And so I wanted us to start with something that I feel like and hopefully will be, Lord willing, if I become the pastor here, um, it'll be a touchstone that we will return to often. Uh, and make sure that are, are, we, are we being the church that Christ died for? Am I being the, the pastor that's being called in that lineage to serve in that way? And so this is, this is the verse that I think defines that most clearly and that, uh, that has been so important to me personally as I have worked out and, and sought and prayed through what I feel like I'm called to be and do. So I want to open us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your people this morning and offer them a word of encouragement and challenge from your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, do what he always does, which is guide and teach and convict and console um, and just, just lead us um, in a way that is glorifying to you. And I pray that you would be with this congregation as they seek your will and your direction um, for the man that you would have. God, let them not make the mistake that Israel made in choosing the wrong king. Um, they don't need to choose a man based on appearances. They need to choose the man that you have led them to choose. And so, Lord, I pray that that process would continue. You've been so gracious up to now, and I trust that you will continue to be faithful and gracious. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Just to give you a little backdrop, uh, to why he's saying what he's saying here. Of course, in the Ephesian letter, he's handled in the first two, three chapters a lot of the deep theology and understanding of the power of the gospel. Now he's getting practical. He's getting down to kind of the nuts and bolts of how should the truth of Ephesians 1 and 2 and even 3 be lived out in the context of the church. And so at the beginning of Ephesians 4, he states very, very clearly his desire um, for them as a church to work within the construct of seeking to be unified in some things. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've got about 15 years of pastoral experience at various levels, from middle school youth ministry to setting up chairs and running sound to being the preacher on Sunday. And uh, one thing that I have seen that we don't emphasize near enough uh, that Christ really fought for and ultimately died for was unity in the church. We give up unity way too quickly. We fight over things that are just completely inconsequential. That's not an accusation of you this morning. That's just a, a point of, of reference to say one of the things you'll hear me say often and push for often is how does this affect the unity of the church? Because we're going to hear from Christ's pre high priestly prayer at the very end today, John 17. He died for it. 
And if he died for it, then we should be willing to fight for it and not give it up quite so easily as we all too often do. So Paul is, is laying that as foundation, and he's establishing that unity is very important within the church and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that it is ultimately founded on these key confessional truths. Uh, he says, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And then he transitions to the means by which this is established and comes to pass through the offices of the church that were established by Christ himself. That's really, really important. Man didn't come up with, with the position that I am, I am vying for, the, the position that I, for which I'm being called. That was not a man-made construct. Christ himself gave these offices to the church as a means of his grace for the ongoing, continuing work for which he died. That's really important for us to understand because it's all too easy to see it just as a man-made position or a man-altered or man-shaped position or church-shaped even, and it's not. And that's the way I understand it. So for, for me, I want you to understand very clearly that as I look at my calling, my calling is unto Christ. First and foremost, not to a place or a people. That is not the premier calling. The premier calling is to Christ himself as he has called me. And here's the good news about that. When the place gets rough or the people get rough or my own soul goes dark, then my foundation is firm, right? So when the waves and the storms pound, I'm not going to just run and turn tail. Instead, I will stand firm on who Christ is in my union with him first and foremost. That's what you would, I would hope you would desire that in a pastor, that you would long for him to be so assured of who he is in Christ that he will not be easily swayed by wind of doctrine or you know, changing in times or changing in congregation. And so that is critical to, to me as I understand my calling. So let's turn to the text. I'll, I'll walk through it slow. Some of it will be up on the screen for you so you'll know where I'm at. Um, let's begin with Ephesians 4.11. If you would hear God's word read this morning. And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Now, let me pause for just a second. Paul here is listing four distinct offices. And I know you may be saying, well, on the screen there's five different names. I don't want to get into all of the, the Greek aspect of it, but there's no definitive article, definitive article being the word the, between, uh, before the word teacher. And so pastor and teacher is considered one office. Now, you may say, well, what about apostles and prophets? Well, the apostles and prophets, uh, that office is essentially no more in the way that it was understood biblically because the church has been planted and God's word has been given. Their specific task was to establish the church and make sure that uh, God's word was given to the people, and they essentially, their office is no more. Evangelists would be those who travel about and, and, and engage more instead of being in one place. They move about a bit, sharing the gospel um, as, as the office of Christ. And then the pastor and teacher, that is one who serves the local church. This is someone who is in a fixed position. And in my case, uh, as I shared last night, for those of you who weren't there, I, I am shaped by the life of Charles Simeon and a man named Jean Lafayette Giardot. And I won't go into all that story of those two men, but they stayed in one place for a really, really long time. And I'm impressed with that, and for some reason that speaks to me. I don't want to bounce from call to call and look for a better church on the horizon. I really want to, as the Lord has called me, stay in one place for a long, long time. And part of that is I would love to see the kids that are ministered to 
uh, in the place where I serve as pastor, be able to know where I am and come back and see me and be able to get questions answered or get whatever it is they need because they know that and have known that I have loved them for a long, long time. And same thing for the rest of the people. And so the pastor teachers would be ones who serve the local church and are more in a fixed place. And so <clears throat> I understand my calling to be that of pastor and teacher. Now, I think it's really important uh, to understand that those two words are, are both necessary. You, you've got some people uh, you may have experienced that are great at being a pastor, but they're not very good teachers. You've got some people who are great at being teachers, uh, but they love books more than they love people, and they love ideas more than they love ministering, and so they're not good at both. And so my longing, um, if, if I have my preferences, would be to be good at both to be both the one who will walk with you through the fire um, as a representative of Christ, helping you to endure the things, the storms that come in on every life, um, and also be able to rejoice and be there when things are amazing and blessed and God is so incredibly glorified, but also to serve as the teacher in the sense of being able to guide and, and shape in terms of doctrine and calling and all of those things. So I, I really see both being necessary, although I do recognize that, that I may lean to one side or the other. And so, um, but my desire is to be balanced in both because Christ was balanced in both, wasn't he? And so Christ, who I'm in union with, I have access to all of that, and I trust that, and I'm excited about that. All right, so if you would turn back to the text, let's read verse 12. So that's how I understand my calling uh, is in Christ as a pastor teacher, and now we're going to start talking about what your response should be in that, and then, and then what my calling is in terms of shaping that. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now let me, let's turn back, if you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 2, because I want you to know who the saints are. And this is really important for you to never forget what Ephesians chapter 2 says, because if you lose sight of Ephesians chapter 2, you begin to start to fight for things that don't matter, and unity comes under, uh, under fire. Listen to what God's Word says, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Let me pause for just a second. So that what a beautiful confession of who we are as saints, that we, though dead in our trespasses, radically depraved, unable to find the light if we even had desired it, but we didn't. God, rich in his mercy, has saved us. So it is always important to return to that humbling reality that when you are called a saint, while that is a glorious and beautiful thing, it should also humble you and remind you that you have not brought this to pass yourself. 
Now, why is that important? That means that you are submitting to a greater reality, that you are submitting to something you didn't come up with and that you didn't shape and you didn't make. Well, that's good news because if you know your own heart like I know mine, the stuff I'd come up with wouldn't be good for any of us. And to quote Steve Brown, I wouldn't have picked you and you probably wouldn't have picked me either. And so, uh, so it's really important for us to return to that in great humility, right? And that helps us frame it and put it in reference when we begin to have these, these conversations about who we are and what we're called to do and this issue of unity, right? Because if we remember that we were bought with a price and that Christ died for us, we won't get caught up in some of the silly things that blow churches apart all across our nation and are such sad testimonies, not to the glory of God, but to the fallenness and ungloriousness of man. And so I want us to, that's one of the things that you will, if, if Lord willing, I will constantly remind you who you are, not in a negative way. So don't think this guy's going to be radical depravity every week. Let me first establish how awful you are and then we'll move up, right? <laughs> no, that's not my intention at all. But I do want us to remember that we, we were indeed bought with a price. And I, I need to remember that too, because sometimes I forget. In fact, one of the verses that has probably shaped me ministerially the most is Luke chapter 10. And if you remember in Luke chapter 10, the disciples had gone out two by two. There were 72 of them, and they're doing these amazing things. And so this is not, this is my interpretation. They're making scorpions do backflips, and they've got snakes charmed. They're doing all this crazy stuff, and they're rejoicing. And they come back, and they are so excited at the power that is in their hands. And what we miss and just bare reading of the text is that Christ almost, well, definitively in a lament says, I would rather you rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That has shaped me pastorally because it is not about the power that I wield in and of myself, ever. It is not about what I can do. It is not about the crowd that I can gather. It is not about the laughs I can get or the people that I can make angry. It is not about any of those things. What it is truly about is that my name is written in heaven and that, that, that every single time I get a chance, that is what I am confessing with all that I am. And that is what I want to do every single time I preach the gospel. If you know nothing else, is that even if you disagree, that you know that I wholeheartedly believe in who Christ is and who I am in him. And so that's really, really important for us. Again, like I said, for all of us to remember what it means to be a saint. It is a costly thing, and it was costly to Christ and not something that you shaped. But here's the important part. Let's read verse 10 from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that, that, that idea that we should walk in these good works, that it is, that is this, this mundane, everyday reality that should be shaped fully by the person and work of Jesus Christ, by the gospel that has transformed us from darkness into light, that we would walk in that, that that would be effectual and changing every bit of who we are. And that is the thing that I long to see as a pastor. Last night, somebody asked me kind of what was some of the, the things that I am passionate about. And the number one thing I'm passionate about, other than the gospel itself and my union with Christ, is seeing those who would be in the flock that I would lead and that I would serve as a lead servant, that their lives would be transformed by the gospel. That we could look to this text as an Ebenezer of sorts and say, that means something. 
It's not a text that is foreign to us and that we look at and go, ah, yeah, it's tough. I don't know. I don't know what that is. That, that we could look to this and say, no, this is who we are. This is the unfolding reality in our midst. So going back to verse 12 from Ephesians chapter 4, my calling as pastor teacher is to equip you, the saints who were described in Ephesians chapter 2, for the work of the ministry. Now let me stop for just a second and talk about what is the work of the ministry. Now some of you, if you're introverts, um, you're very concerned right now. You're wondering if I'm going to like turn around and, and bring out a bunch of tracks and say, okay, let's test it. Let's see who's, who's what. There's a softball tournament going over there. They're not in church. Clearly there's a problem. Let's just go storm them. Let's, let's tear them up. Let's get them. Right? And my wife would crawl under a chair. She's the introvert between the two of us, if you haven't guessed that so far. That's, so when I say the work of the ministry, let me tell you how I understand it. Christ, when asked what was the greatest commandment of all, said this. He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And that comes from the Old Testament. And then he said, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, which also comes from the Old Testament. And so when I hear the work of the ministry, what I want to see you developed and shaped in is Trinitarian worship and missional love of your neighbor. Let me define the term missional because that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I mean that in the true Great Commission sense. Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and teaching them the things that I have taught you. And so for us to be missional means that we desire for those around us to come to know Christ. Now, just a point of application, I know uh, that there's one in here who has five children and stays home with them. The greatest missional field that she has is those five children. I don't think she needs to fly to China. If she does, that's great. Um, I would love for her to, maybe Iran. They, they need the gospel over there. But if she doesn't, that's quite all right unless she was called. If she's not called to do that, she's got five little souls in her stead that daily need to see her do exactly what Ephesians 2.10 said, walk out the reality of being shaped by the gospel. So I don't want you to, whenever you hear me say the term missional, for those of you who might be concerned that I'm saying let's get on a plane to Iran or do something strange, I'm not. That's not beyond the pale of reason, though. God does sometimes call us to do some pretty strange stuff, but he equips those whom he calls, right? And so I, don't ever hear me trying to land unevenly on you saying you are to do something you're not gifted and or called to do. My goal is to see you grow up into the way in which the Lord himself has shaped and gifted you in a variety of creative ways that we get the opportunity to testify of often. And that is the as-you-go reality, the day-to-day -day stuff. If we do big, great, crazy stuff, that's great too. But I'm really not, that's not what I mean when I say missional per se. So the work of the ministry, just to reiterate, Trinitarian worship. Now, why do I use the term Trinitarian? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Uh, it's really important that we recognize that, that Jesus is not saving us from God, right? He's saving us to God. There's not two gods. That's a Gnostic concept. There's not an Old Testament God who was angry and needed to be appeased so he could turn into the New Testament grandfatherly Sam Larson God, um, just to give you a frame of reference. And so, that, you know, Jesus did not... So God, you got to understand, God from the beginning, if we were to read Ephesians 1, we would hear how much God loved us and is lavishing His grace upon us. And one of the things I am blown away by is how much grace there is in the Old Testament and how often we miss it. So one of the things you're going to hear from me often is I'm going to preach from the Old Testament. 
I'm not afraid of Nahum or Obadiah or any of those books. We need them, too, to give the full diet and the balance of who God really is. And sometimes when there's stuff that we can't understand, it's because God so fiercely loves his children. Any of you who are parents know you would lay down your life for your kids. And you would do anything to make sure that they were protected. And that is oftentimes what he would do in the Old Testament in the places that we are kind of tough for us to understand. And so I, 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 Trinitarian, I want us to make sure that we understand God's grace was from the beginning and that he is the one who sent Christ. Christ didn't just step in and say, hey, let me take it from here. You don't seem to be doing too well, Dad. And it needs to be Trinitarian in the fact that it is Christ who came and was the incarnate God-man fully on both sides and mysterious in that reality, and that it is Christ who laid down his life, and that it is also Christ and God who provided the Holy Spirit such that we would have an ongoing help or paraclete in this world. And those of you who've lived long enough, you know we need some help, don't we? And thanks be to God that he has given us a very real and rich help in the power of the Holy Spirit who is always at work in our midst even when we don't see it. And, and to guide us and to convict us and to build us up. And so I, I, I want to make sure that, that if, if I'm going to be the guy that I, we are equipped in fully understanding the fullness of Trinitarian worship. And then as I said, the, the missional living, the loving of neighbor. And so one of the things that I'll say to that is that you, your nearest neighbor and all that goes along with the passages about loving your neighbor should be applied first and foremost in your family. If you're not applying it to your family, you do not have a missional witness in the world. You don't. And so, so often we get that upside down, don't we? We, we? we treat strangers way better than we would ever treat our teenage sons and daughters. We, treat, we give strangers far more grace than we ever extend to our spouse. And so I don't want us to be upside down on that. So know that one of the things I'm going to emphasize is first and foremost that we have a genuine and deep missional work to our own families first and that that is the platform from which we will go out into the world and do the work of the ministry that the Lord has for us based on the neighbors that you have. And each of you are gifted in different ways and you have different neighbors that you can reach different than I can. And I'm gifted different as well. And so there's people that I can reach that maybe some of you can't. And so that's a wonderful thing. What, what would it look like for us as a church to take that seriously? So my job is to equip you, the saint who's been saved by grace, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to, to the fullness of the ministry to which God has called us, which is both worship and both missional living. Now, for some of you, um, I, I want to make a comment here from a practical perspective. For some of you, your bent is the missional. So actually how you need to be pushed is Trinitarian worship. Because you're going to burn out if, if you keep pushing hard after the mission because you're going to grow jaded, right? Because people around you are not going to love it as much as you do, and they're not going to get it as much as you do, and they're not going to sacrifice as much as you do. Well, you need to remember who sacrificed most of all. So we need to take you back toward Trinitarian worship. And for those of you who it's, it's all about worship and, 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 and God, and, uh, and listen, that's good, but, but you're almost to the point that you don't believe in the necessity to go be missional, or you're afraid, or you don't know what your gift is. We need to push you toward the missional side. And so one of the things that I would seek to do pastorally and from a shepherding perspective is to judge kind of where you are in that. And to give you an example, Wes, who works with RUF, he spends a lot of time out being missional. And so when he comes here, we don't need to ask Wes to do anything here. 
He doesn't need to serve on anything here because he is wearing it out all week long, hopefully, for the Lord at KSU. And so what Wes needs is for us to minister to his soul and for him to be able to engage in Trinitarian worship so that he can go back out in full and do, if you've dealt with college students at all, what is very, very difficult um, to love them all throughout the week and see their lives change. That's just to give you a tangible example of how that would play out in my mind. So we, we, we will kind of push and pull, and there's a balance there for us. All right, and then it goes on to say that, that we do all that for, for building up the body of Christ. And so all that we do, it's not about what any individual does. It's not about, hey, look at what Cameron has accomplished, or hey, look at what Mark has accomplished, or hey, look at what Jonathan has accomplished. But instead, look at what Christ's community is doing for the glory of Christ. And one of the things that I often see is that churches really lack a corporate perspective when it comes to these things. They, they don't think about how their actions and their, the things that they do have an impact on the whole of the name of the church. And how when they don't use the gift that they have, it makes the whole body weaker as such. And, and we're not able to accomplish the things that, that, that we could do if everybody were willing to live out the way in which they're gifted, the way in which they are called. And so it's important for us to keep that corporate perspective. And so the first question that I have for you, and this is often kind of how this is one of the ways in which I work out the application, is to ask you a question. And this is something for you to think about, something for you to pray in the Holy Spirit is, are you committed as a church? Because if I'm going to be the pastor, teacher here, if Lord willing you call me, I want to know, are you committed to being equipped for Trinitarian worship and to loving missional service of your various neighbors? If you're not interested in being equipped and you guys think that you are perfected and you're just waiting for Jesus to show back up, I am not the guy. I'm not. And, and I don't think that you believe that, by the way. I, I've met enough of you to know better. Um, but you got, you, are you teachable? Are you humble in being willing to be pushed where you're, like I said, if you're heavy on the missional side, sometimes those guys don't like to talk about Trinitarian worship. Uh, sometimes they don't want to be pushed in that direction. Sometimes the Trinitarian worship folks, they don't want to be pushed toward being missional. It's very uncomfortable. Are you willing to be pushed and, and pulled in the name of Christ biblically such that we as a corporate body can glorify him in ways that we haven't done as of yet and can do if we are willing and humble? Amen? All right. Turn to verse 13 for me says this, and then, and then we're to do all this, build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Somebody help me out. When's that going to happen? Well, when Jesus comes back, he's going to perfect his bride. Now, let me tell you why that's good news to us. It's good news because it means that we don't have to be the perfect church. We don't have to strive to be what it is utterly impossible to be between the now and the not yet. So here's the good news. We're going to be perfected, right? So for some of you, there's kind of this, you have a despair in you sometimes as you look at the church and she oftentimes looks so ragged and so unbeautiful and unlovely and unglorifying to her groom, Christ. And you despair of that because you wonder, when will she change? I just told you, she will. She will be radiant 
radiant when Christ returns. And that is promised, and we will be perfected, and we will, all the questions will go away, and everything we wanted to know will come into full view so that we can worship in spirit and truth. And that is a glorious day. And that is something we're reminded of every single time we take communion. Um, not, not something we're doing today, but that, that communion points forward to that reality. And that reality should set us free to engage in the messiness of what it means to be the church of Christ between the now and the not yet. That we have the freedom to go after those for whom we know so desperately need Christ, but they are going to be a tremendous headache for us for a season until they grow up and mature and learn how to dress like I did this morning, right? I hope not. So it's really important. One of the questions that I asked the elders when, when I was being interviewed is I, I asked, and you're going to think, man, this guy's a jerk. We, I may lose some votes here. That's okay. Um, I asked him, who do you not want at your church, at this church? Who do you not want to look around and see on Sunday morning? Because I need to know that because I may go after some of those people. And, uh, and I don't, I don't want to bring them here and y'all be mean to them and me look like a fool. And Christ look even more foolish. Now you say, hold on a second now, we just got uncomfortable, I don't like this line of questioning. And I get it, but this comes from experience. I was a a pastor at a a rescue mission in Macon for eight years. And oftentimes, one of the things that I, I knew they needed more than anything as they graduated from the rescue mission was to be connected to a local church. And I can't tell you the horror stories that came back Um, as these men and women, it was drug-addicted, homeless men, oftentimes veterans, and battered women and children, the horror stories that they would come back and say, Cameron, we did what you told us we should do, and the result was horrific. I was treated as if I was a leper once they found out where I had come from. And that is very painful to me. And in fact, it happened in one of the churches in which I served to some extent, and it was, it was gut-wrenching. And I will not put people through that again. And so I, I asked that question, and you need to answer the question as well, because there's the question that we kind of have before us is, are we committed to the messiness of the imperfect church between the now and the not yet? Because if we're going to truly be missional, guess what? We're going to have people who come in with questions, who don't understand the order salutis, and they don't understand this whole talk of baptizing of infants that's going to be completely foreign to them. And we can't set our jaw like flint and act like that they just they either need to get it or they're not predestined. That's not the gospel at all, is it? In fact, some of the richest folks that I've seen come to an understanding of what I call biblical theology, some call it reformed theology, is been through my work in the inner city in one of the most depressed neighborhoods in all of the South. It's called Pleasant Hill. And it's in Macon. It's a historically African-American neighborhood. It's the only place where African-Americans could live in the 18 and 1900, early 1900s in Macon. And now it is an absolute collapsing cesspool. And, uh, but they grab onto the truths of the gospel, though it is messy as you can possibly imagine or maybe not even can imagine, 
it is, it is a beautiful thing because when they are told that you were selected before the beginning of time such that nothing can say that you are not a child of God, they drink that in like it is the deepest and truest and most beautiful waters. And to know that their rumbling and stumbling and bumbling in this world cannot have the final say on who they are as the elect son or daughter of the Most High God is absolutely freeing. All of the counseling, all of the steps, all of the stuff kind of wash away in that reality, and they are just blown away by it. So are we willing to take the time to make sure, because that's going to be true of college kids. If we go after them, it's going to be true of the kids at the skate park. If we go after them, it's going to be true of the people. If we do the addiction ministry or out of darkness and they choose to come here as their home church because we've ministered to them missionally, any of the people in the trailer park, if they come here, they're not going to get it straight away. They're not going to understand how we do what we do and what the dance is and what all the rules are. Are you willing, church, to live in that tension and messiness and to love those people from point A to point B to point C and take the time and the effort necessary to see them come to the fullness of that? Because if you're not, I'm not the guy. I'm not. I'm just going to do damage, uh, and I don't want to be the guy if you're not willing to live in that tension? And then are you committed to welcoming those who are working out their faith with fear and trembling and all the questions that they're going to have and all the challenges they're going to have, especially as we are in a, a, a quickly shifting culture, particularly on issues of homosexuality and marriage and gender and personhood, which strike at the very tree of creation? Are you willing to walk with those people and to be gentle and loving? And, and I didn't say tolerant, and I didn't say you have to not say what's true. Don't ever hear me say that. But there's a time and a place when the Spirit prepares the soil for which the seed to be dropped or the water to be poured so that God can enjoy the increase. Are you willing to live in that tension? Because that is the tension that missionality creates. Because if we start really being missional and new folks start coming in, guess what the culture of this church is going to do? It's going to change. And for some of you, that culture may be an idol. And you may say, I liked it the way it was. Who this guy is coming in here with his Auburn Tiger and tie on, talking about all this change. And that, listen, I'm not coming in trying to grab the wheel and go careening like you were driving in the war. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to, I want to prepare you. I want you to understand fully who I am and how some of what I desire, as, as, as is my calling, as I see it from Scripture, to happen over time. And, and we, we can do that. And again, I want to go back for just a second. We can live in the messiness because of the perfection that we know that is coming. Amen? And that, is, that, that really solidifies us. And so often I know I'm guilty of having forgotten. Let's turn to verses 14 through 16. So the promise of his return and the perfecting of us leads into verse 14. So that reality, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, the church that focuses on maturity in Christ and the reality that, that Christ is going to come back and perfect that church 
is the church that is able to stand against the winds of doctrines that blow and the new books that get produced and the new ideas that come out from the people that we thought we loved and all of that nonsense that kind of swirls around in the blogosphere, which Johnson Stuckert loves so much. And, you know, all that just, just irreality that is not healthy and not good. How many of you have seen people get swept away in it? Somebody that you thought was solid and they read some cockamamie book about end times or uh, who's in and who's out and all of a sudden they're preaching a false gospel and they're swept away and you're scratching your head going, what happened? Well, Paul just told us what happened. The church as a whole was ultimately not healthy and that the, the, the church as a whole is what helps protect the individual members from all of this craziness that swirls in our culture. And that the, the, the wolves who come dressed as sheep, as Paul promised, they would come. That they are snatching people left and right. So the greatest protection for us against that is for us to live in Trinitarian worship and missional love of our neighbor as Christ called us. And we do that with a corporate mindset, recognizing that we are only as strong as a church as the weakest member. And that we do that recognizing that that weakness doesn't have the final say, that the church will be perfected when Christ returns. And that that gives us the ability to withstand all that blows and pushes against us. I mean, if we were truly confessional, and I struggle with this, I wonder sometimes if we, how are we going to survive the current culture war? I worry sometimes, not because I don't believe and not because I don't trust Christ, but because it has grown so emotional and so just purulent and so violent in its rhetoric. You know what violence in its rhetoric oftentimes is the precursor to? Violence in its reality. And for those of you who remember anything about World War II or any other type circumstance like that, this is the way that it went. Now, I'm not saying that Obama's Hitler and I'm not saying any of that kind of craziness. But the, bigger than Obama is the, the whole thing in the culture. You've got to remember who's at the head of it. Who is it? It is the prince of the power of this world who's at the head of it. And he is orchestrating it and has been orchestrating it for years and years and years. Why? Because he is patient. And he knows how to lay some things along the way. But here Paul is saying the way to undo the patience of the cloven-hoofed one, Satan, is to grow up in maturity and do what it is you were designed and called to do and be. That's how you battle that. And so I long for us not to be tossed about, not to be carried about, and not to be gambled with, which is actually how the Greek reads there, those who use cunning. They are gambling with the lives of the people. I don't want to see any of your lives gambled with. Um, and I can't stop it, but I do know the way to prevent the vast majority of it, which is what we have read in this text. And so when we grow up into him and every part does what every part is supposed to do, we are in good shape, aren't we? And so one of the things I want to make sure is that there is nobody who is a regular attender here or a communing member that doesn't know what their gift is. Um, and I know that that can be a difficult thing, and I know that there are all kind of gift inventories, some better than others, and oftentimes you taking the gift inventories, you saying what you would prefer to do, while other people may recognize your gift is different. And so it is a, it is a process that also, that'll be one of the things that if you call me, that's one of the things I'm going to try to do very quickly, is help you to understand what it is you're gifted and called to do. And it won't be because I said you're gifted and called to do it. And it won't be me dictating how you play out your call. I just want you to know 
so that you can then begin to pray, and I'll be praying with you. How will that play out in your life? Um, and so, because that is the thing that makes us the strongest. And so, um, this occurs the absolute best when we do it in a spirit of love. Now, not love in the way that the culture has taken the term and twisted it and made it difficult to even comprehend, but love in the way that Christ displayed. Love in the way that God displayed as He lavished it upon us through His love for us in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? And so, so when we sp- talk about speaking the truth in love, that doesn't mean that you don't tell the truth, does it? Oftentimes we've taken that verse to mean, no, this is you being overly tolerant. This is you not speaking certain things at certain times. No, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is tell somebody the straightaway truth. Uh, interestingly, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller, they're uh, radical atheists, or neo-atheists in that sense. And it was interesting because the tall one, I always get this messed up, I think the tall one's Penn, is that right? Anybody confirm that? Okay. So Penn is the taller one, and he had a guy that uh, attended all four shows in Las Vegas. And the guy struck up a relationship with Penn, and at the end of the thing, at the end of the last show, he came up to Penn and he handed him a Bible. He said, hey man, I know this ain't your gig, and I, I get it, I know you hate it, but dude, I just, I think you're, I just, lo- I've loved being around you, and I want to be able to, to spend an eternity with you, because I think it'll be funny, and it'll be great. Now, we can question the theology of that, but I don't, don't worry about it right now. So, so Penn went home and got online and made a video, and he said, and he was clearly emotionally shaken by what the guy did. And he said, this is the first person who's ever evidenced a genuine love for whatever he thinks my soul to be. He said, what kind of religion ignores when a Mack truck is coming down a street and a child's walking out in front of it? What kind of religion doesn't do everything they can to save that person or that child from the Mack truck running them over? He said, well, I disagree with this guy wholeheartedly and what he believes. I I've been moved by his genuine desire to see my life change. So here's Penn, neo-atheist, who is, if you've ever read anything by him, you don't need to confess or repent or anything, but it's foul. The dude is, he is, he is the, one of the foulest people that I know. And to see him visibly moved by this act of missional evangelism by this one person who said, Penn, man, I, I get it, you don't like it, but I just want you to have it just in case because I desire to see you in eternity, man, I love you. Um, that is such a powerful thing. So that's kind of for me when I say speak the truth in love, that what it is we're speaking, while it is heavy and there's much gravity to it, that we recognize we are ambassadors of reconciliation, not ambassadors of judgment. You get that? That's really important because so often I think we think we're ambassadors of judgment. Now, am I saying that judgment's not important, that that's not part of the fullness of the gospel? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there's one who can talk about judgment to the hearts of people way better than you and I can. And that's the Holy Spirit. Now, are we to warn them? Yes, but to do it in love. But to do it as ones who long for and seek after reconciliation. It says, Spurgeon said, if we ever speak of hell, we should always do it with tears in our eyes. And that that ministers, right? And it doesn't guarantee anything, but it changes things. And so when Paul is speaking of that here, that is exactly what he means. That we, and he goes into this, and even in the book of Romans, he says, it is not for us to heap up condemnation on people. We are love them and let the Lord deal with that as he wills. 
And so I want us to be a church who is defined by our ability and courage to speak the truth, but I want us to be able to do it in love. And that's part of the equipping that, that I would certainly engage in and certainly hopefully as in the preaching and, the, and the, as we talk about application each and every time, that that would be clearly evident for me. And it, that would, if you need help in that, you need shaping in that, we would work on that as much as needed to be done until you felt like you were ready. Um, because different personalities come across differently, right? I mean, it's just the way that it is, but the Lord can shape and change because I am evidence of that. If you knew me back when, you would be utterly blown away. I'll tell you a story. When I was a radical anti-theist, I was at the Shannon Mall, which has been closed down, is being torn down, probably for this very reason, like an anathema. Um, There was a group of kids who came in with some local Baptist church, and the youth pastor turned them loose, knees knocking, scared to death, sweating palms, that they, part of their sanctification was to go and to bother people at the mall and share the gospel with tracks, right? We call it track bombing. And so uh, this poor kid comes up to me, and he's, he's nervous as he can be, and I turned on him, and he, he handed me the track, and I said, I don't want that. And I tore him up because I'm a philosophy guy. I just destroyed this poor kid. And he's crying. And I remember I looked up, and I knew immediately who the youth pastor was. That's nothing against you, Matt. I knew immediately who the youth pastor was, and I looked at him in the eye, and I said, don't you send another lamb to this slaughter. And I walked off. I am grieved. I I hope I can meet that kid someday and tell him I'm sorry and tell him he won, (laughs) ultimately. But he didn't win. Christ won. But you know what I'm saying. And so, but, I mean, that's just... That's so much my desire is that we would have the ability to engage guys like myself that I once was in truth and love and that we would be equipped and able to stand because if the truth that we believe can't stand in this culture and in this world and it can't speak to the verities of suffering and questions that come up, then what in the world are we doing? Are we just whistling past the graveyard? I don't think so, and I don't believe so. And so are you committed to using your gifts according to the word of God in love for the protection and unity of the confessional church? Is that your commitment? Is that your desire is that you would use your gifts to that end? And if so, if that is the response that you would give, then I would say, by all means, call me as your pastor. But if not, I know this sounds crazy, don't. Because I am not the guy. Not the way that I understand what God has called me to do and how he's called the church to ultimately respond to the work of the one called pastor-teacher. In closing, let me read John 17, 15 through 26. Um, I've been living in Jesus' high priestly prayer for a number of months now. I've actually preached on it a a number of times. I I normally don't preach a text twice because I think the Bible's a big old place and you ought to wander around a little bit. Um, But it's been so appropriate. I've had the unique opportunity to preach and am currently serving as an interim at a church in Noonan where um, they, they had a very messy divorce with their pastors. And this was the sermon that I preached first because I thought it was really important to remind the church who she is and, and, and what it was that Christ so desired. Because so you've got to think for a second. If you knew that it was the last time on this side of heaven 
barring the, he knew he was going to return for the resurrection, but as far as the disciples understood, this was the last time they were going to see Jesus. And he really wanted them to hear his heart and his soul for them and his desire. So these words have great gravity, right? I mean, if you knew you were going to spend the last of a moment with someone, what would you talk about? The, the two-to-one loss for the Braves last night? Probably not. Not what we're talking about. You're going to talk about things that really matter, that you want them to know as they go on. So hear uh, God's word. Hear these words from Christ. I'm not going to give you any commentary on it. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm done. And then I'll turn it over to whoever is up next. And so, um, But I want you to hear them in light of that reality, uh, in light of Christ's great desire for his church. Beginning in verse 15. I do not ask that you, God, take them, being the disciples, out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent Christ um, to redeem that which was lost, to bind that which was broken, to mend that which was put out of joint, to to do all of the things that you promised as a shepherd that you would do. And God, we thank you so much that Christ's work was perfect, and that it is unquestionable, and it is powerful, and it is transforming. Thank you, God, that the, the person that I was, the vileness that, that poured out of me no longer does and that I am a new creation in Christ and I celebrate my status and union with Christ and let that be the reality that forms the steps of each and every day. Most importantly, this day, your Sabbath, the Lord's Day. God, may we be able to celebrate as a congregation if even this is the only moment that we could celebrate together, let it be that reality that we celebrate who we are in Christ, who we are being transformed into as your church. And God, I thank you so much that you have given so freely and so lavishly of all the gifts of heaven uh, as it is poured out in the power of your Holy Spirit as the Spirit guides and leads and teaches. I pray that we would be um, challenged, that we would be encouraged, that we would be able to respond to your word today. Respond to it affirmatively such that it brings glory to you, even if it feels painful to us even now. God, I pray for this congregation that you would give them wisdom as they vote. Help them to see if 
in fact, I am the one that you have called to be here and that they are affirming what you have called. God, if not, I pray that you would provide um, quickly, um, that you would uh, grant grace, um, give them continued endurance, let them not in any way, shape, or form think that anything has changed uh, concerning your love for them. God, we thank you for your abiding and your faithfulness. God, we thank you for just the opportunity, though it is not easy, to set all this stuff up so that we could for but a moment just celebrate you in Christ's name. Amen.